questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And as promised, we are bringing health and wellness to Veritas too. So tonight, you don't want to miss this interview. Tonight's guest is a veteran of Sanitas, which is now making the first appearance on this radio program, Veritas. So I'm so happy that you'll be able to experience what Sanitas has to offer here. But if you want to listen to three seasons full of great information that will change your life, in addition to what you're going to be experiencing tonight, go to SanitasRadio.com and become a member there so you can have access to three full seasons of great information. And to listen to tonight's full interview, you know what to do by now. Go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe, and you'll have access to hundreds of hours of truth. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or simply have feedback, you know that I always love to hear from you. Click on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. Do you want to live longer? slow aging, superpower your brain, and save your life, then listen up, because what we will discuss tonight can change your life by eating what makes you human. Tonight's special guest is a veteran of Sanitas, and now she joins us on Veritas, bringing you health and wellness to this platform too. Nora Kitgaudas is a widely recognized expert on what is popularly referred to as the paleo diet and is a highly successful, experienced nutritional consultant, speaker, and educator. Her popular podcasts are widely listened to on iTunes, along with numerous free articles and a location on the homepage. She maintains a private practice in Portland, Oregon, as both a board-certified nutritional consultant and a board-certified clinical neurofeedback specialist. She is the author of Primal Body, Primal Mind, and the new book, which is coming out, if it's not already out, which will be the focus of tonight's discussion, is titled Primal Fat Burner, Live Longer, Slow Aging, Superpower Your Brain, and Save Your Life with a High-Fat, Low-Carb Paleo Diet. Nora's website is primalbody-primalmind.com, which is also linked on our website. Nora joins us from Portland, Oregon. Hello, Nora. Happy New Year, and thank you for joining me again how are yes. you? Happy New Year to you too, Mel, and it's such a pleasure and an honor to be back again. Likewise, and you are located in Snowmageddon right now, where there's a <laughs> lot of snow in up there no, in Portland. In Portland, Oregon, my gosh. Yeah, we, we're not, we're just not designed to handle this stuff out here, and uh, I mean, being a former uh, Minnesotan, um, it's, it's uh, very humbling to be in a place that uh, where snow is a completely different experience. It's every bit as beautiful, but it seems like it's a hundred times more treacherous here. So, and it can but, be dangerous, especially the people who are driving who are not used to to that. But uh, we have yes, a new up book and down out. very very steep icy hills. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But we have a new book, and we're yeah. always in search for of a new diet, a new gimmick, something that that will work fast. But most importantly. I think people forget to give credit to our ancestors and don't learn from them as, as we should. If we are here today, it's because those ancestors did something right, Nora. Were our ancestors persistent searching for, for fat, but ultimately made us who we are today? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I... You know, the term primal fat burner, it sounds like a weight loss book. And that certainly would be probably a, a side effect of this whole thing that, that many people would enjoy. But the, uh, the point of this is uh, the primal fat burner is a bit of a double entendre. It refers to adopting a fat-based metabolism versus fat-based uh, fat-burning metabolism, I should say, as opposed to a sugar-burning metabolism which is typical for the vast majority of people probably listening to this. And 
Um, you know, quite a number of years ago, I spent some time in the high Arctic. Um, I lived less than 500 miles from the North Pole for a whole summer with a family of wild wolves and in the company of a world famous wolf biologist by the name of Dr. L. David Meech. And I was there participating in behavioral research of these animals and, uh, you know, living on Ellesmere Island um very very remotely the closest human village was 350 miles south and but there were remnants of ancient uh tule sites on uh in in this area uh that were thousands of years old and and uh you know i i noticed sitting there on the tundra looking at this and and this landscape really hadn't changed since before the last uh, ice sheet covered north america um that wow there there really aren't any vegetables growing here <laughs> there's nothing really uh, growing out of the ground for human beings to eat uh, that far north there really weren't even any berries um and there was permafrost you know so there's nothing you could grow other than you know sedges and uh arctic bell heather and and uh, arctic willows and things like that and lichens and mosses and such um but obviously people were eating a diet that was based entirely on animal-based foods and one of the interesting things, you know, at the, at the time I went up there, which was 1991, at that point, I was very health oriented. But at the time, I was sort of buying into the mainstream health paradigm, the idea that, you know, dietary fat was a bad thing. We had to minimize that wherever possible. Um, if you're going to eat meat, it should be the leanest meat possible. And, you know, vegetables are really where it's at and all that kind of a thing. And, uh, and when I got there, I got off the plane or whatever, and I thought, gosh, how am I going to you know, survive without my co-op and without all my veggies and salads and juicing and all of that? And I found that I cared not at all about any of that. The last thing on my mind when I got off the plane in this environment was a salad. Um, what I became obsessed with, and it really inexplicably, was was fat. And I craved fat constantly up there. Um, and I pretty much sat on my backside the entire summer, um, you know, looking at wolves and following them on their hunts and or just sitting there for hours, very well bundled against the cold and all of that. I wasn't physically cold at all in this environment. And it was summertime it would get as high as 60 degrees up there. But um, a couple of days it got up to that. Mostly it was hovered around freezing. But at any rate, uh, but. I would be sitting there and I would be eating salami and cheese and you know and, and nut butters and um it, I was snacking on whatever was fat rich and then once a week we made a pilgrimage to the local weather station uh, there was a military weather station that was some distance away from where the wolf den was where we were camped and we were allowed by the officer in charge to go in and take a shower thankfully um, may, maybe make a 15 minute phone call to somebody we loved to let them know we were still alive. And then they said, you know, if there's something sitting out of the mess hall that looks good to you, you know, you're welcome to help yourself to it. So I'd walked, walked into the mess hall and there with the light of heaven shining upon it at the back of the mess hall was this enormous bowl of butter. And I would make a beeline over to that bowl of butter. And then I, back then I was actually eating bread still. So I would make toast. It was a vehicle for the butter. I didn't care about the bread. I just wanted something to put the butter on. And I was slather, you know, like an inch of butter on this bread and just <laughs> eat slice after slice until I was too embarrassed to continue. And so you would think that a person sitting on their rear end, and I didn't walk around very much at all, but it, it upset the wolves to see us walking around. As long as we sat there, they were very fine. And you know, happy to have us there and even curious about us and would come over and check us out and whatever. But they didn't like us walking around too much. So we sat pretty still unless we were on four wheelers following them on hunts and things. And uh, so you'd think that somebody sitting on their rear end most all summer long eating, you know, all this fat um, probably would have packed on a few pounds. And in fact, I lost about 25 pounds um, that summer. And, you know, and, and I was also found myself thinking constantly about what were these people eating, you know, because I was at the time I was I very much had a passion for for, you know, diet and health, uh, even though I was, I was doing this other work. And I thought, how does that, um, you know, how does that add up? Because these people clearly lived here for thousands of years. They did really well. They weren't fat and they ate 
almost entirely meat and tons and tons of fat. And, and, you know, clearly it made sense that I was craving fat. Turns out that, you know, that even in all primitive cultures, even those in the, for instance, Aboriginal outback or in the tropics or whatever else, venerated fat above and beyond all um, sources of nourishment. Fat-rich foods were the most venerated. And, uh, but up there, it was, it was just extremely obvious and it it put a bug in in the back of my brain and something that I found myself having um, difficulty reconciling what I had been taught about nutrition and what my experience up there had taught had told me or taught me. And then I found the work of Weston Price, who we may have talked about last time. He mm-hmm. was, you know, he was a very uh, I mean, he's a very famous nutritional pioneer who spent 10 years of his life and traveling 100,000 miles across the planet back in the 1920s and 30s, uh, where we'd first developed air travel, but were now, uh, but there were still all of these primitive and traditional societies that were still doing things the old way. And he covered the globe studying these different cultures. And he searched actually far and wide to try to find a vegetarian or vegan culture in there somewhere. He was sure he'd find one. He never did. But there were two things in common. Uh, I mean, he was he studied aboriginals in Australia. He studied, you know, Inuit and northern, uh, you know, Canadian uh, Indian tribes. He was in South America studying, you know, tribal culture there. He was in remote Lochental Valley in Switzerland. He was in Africa. I mean, he went everywhere. Uh, some remote Celtic Isles, the Outer Hebrides, um, looking at what these traditional cultures were eating, and he found. Everywhere where these cultures were eating their traditional diet, they were extraordinarily healthy, mentally and physically, showed no signs of dental abnormality. Uh, cavities were extremely rare. They were the most rare among the Inuit. Um, and uh, just very robust physical, mental health and robust babies, you know, that they were having. Uh, but you can imagine that these various cultures throughout the world would have had in different climates and different ecosystems, whatever would have had tremendously different sources of food along the way. But there were two things that were consistent in every single instance where, where there was, where there were examples of excellent health in these cultures throughout the world. There were two things that were underlying consistencies, which I think is critical to look at because those are the things that are foundational in my mind. And that is that every single one of these cultures, primitive or traditional, consumed as many animal source foods as were available to them. And the second thing that was consistent among all of them is that in every single instance, the single most venerated food, uh, the most valued food in every single one of these cultures and the most sacred foods were the ones that were the most uh, rich in fat and fat soluble nutrients every time. And so what I've come to what I came to realize is that this is what is foundational to our health and the rest, all these other, you know, foods and 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 things that we may have consumed along the way and gotten away with, you know, supplied our diet with mere nuances, uh, you know, just we're, we're supplemental either to our benefit or to our detriment. And the degree to which we were healthy suggests suggest to me that. That those found the, the most foundational aspects of our diet were most solidly in place, and they were able to compensate perhaps for the other things they may have consumed that may have been less beneficial, uh, or po- perhaps even compromising in some way. But that as long as those foundations were intact, um, these cultures enjoyed robust health to w- one degree or another. And the Inuit w- impressed him. Um, almost impressed him the most of any culture. I think he was also especially impressed with the Aboriginal people. And it's sort of interesting. It's when you think of fat and the cold, it seems to make sense, right? Because fat being a fuel that we use to insulate us and keep us warm and that we burn in our, you know, furnace in order to kind of keep our, our body temperature up, et cetera. Well, that makes sense. But fat was every bit as venerated, if not more so in places like the Aboriginal outback. And Aboriginal hunters um, venerated fat above all things. And if, if they went out and they, say, killed a kangaroo, 
And they found, upon examining, you know, the carcass of that kangaroo, that the animal was too lean and didn't have enough fat. They'd leave it out in the sun to rot and go find another one. That fat was what they hunted for. And this has apparently been a trend throughout our history. And it, it, it best explains um, the one thing that... Um, that characterizes us as humans more than any other thing. And that is our comparatively extremely large and sophisticated brain and extremely ra rapid rate of, of encephalization that occurred during our evolutionary development that allowed for, you know, the development of sophisticated executive function and, um, you know, all the gray matter, the, the cerebral cortex that we have. Um, we owe, our brains are made of fat. They're constructed from the very fats that we supply them with, with what we choose to eat. And the two fatty acids that are most critical to human cognition um, are arachidonic acid, which is uh, found uh, exclusively in animal source foods, and docosahexanoic acid, DHA, it's an elongated, the most elongated form of omega-3, exclusively found in the human food supply in animal source foods. You can't get DHA from flax oil or chia seed oil or walnut oil or sachinichi oil or any of these other plant-based omega-3 fats. We can't use those. Our brain cannot use those. And the elongation process doesn't even happen uh, to where we are able to generate any DHA um, or almost any at all from plant-based omega-3 fats. We have to get them from animal source foods. And if they're not in your diet, they're not in your brain. And so, and uh, the other thing that occurs um, at a very high percentage in the human brain, that's also exclusive to animal source foods is cholesterol. 25, I was going to ask you about cholesterol. 25% of all the cholesterol in the human body is the in the brain, brain. Right. and it better be there. And if it's not, you've got some real problems. Is this why people who are under cholesterol lowering medication seem to be lowering their IQs? Yeah, well, they're not just lowering their IQs. What they're what they're doing is they're um, one of the very common side effects of these cholesterol lowering medications can involve dementia like symptoms. Um, you cannot have healthy cognitive function or optimal cognitive function without the abundance of cholesterol in the brain. And of course, close to half the fat in the human brain is also saturated, and it needs to be, because saturated fats, by virtue of their molecular structure, are highly resistant to oxidation, right? It's, you know, we're not refrigerated, right? So inside our body, where it's 98.6 degrees, imagine if you took a bowl of fish oil uh, on a hot summer day where you didn't have air conditioning, it was 98.6 degrees in your house, and you put that out on your kitchen counter for a few hours, what that would do. Obviously, if you have something that can insulate that and protect it against oxidation and heat damage, um, then you're going to make much healthier use of these delicate polyunsaturated fats. And that's part of what saturated fat does. It protects uh, um, these these delicate, more delicate, uh, polyunsaturated fats that were everybody says, oh, you're supposed to just that's the only good kind of fat. Look, every natural source of fat, particularly those from animal source foods that have been fed a natural diet for them, in other words, totally pastured, totally uh, grass fed, um, all the fats present in meat like that are innately beneficial in some way and you know we, we we've become conditioned to thinking about fat as one thing when in fact it is many different things in fact there's not even one type of saturated fat there are short chain saturated fats medium chain saturated fats and long chain saturated fats and your body uses them in different ways and some cannot be stored as body fat at all Others are very um, and and are typically very rapidly metabolized uh, as energy directly, and will go into the portal blood to be converted to ketones or whatever, and then utilized that way. Uh, and then there are longer chain saturated fats that serve 
uh, as cellular structural integrity that that are important to maintain membrane integrity, you know, a little, certain amount of stiffness um, so that your cells don't collapse, right? You don't want all polyunsaturated fats. You don't want too many vegetable oils. You want just the right amount of stiffness and permeability to allow for exchange of nutrients and things like that. Um, and, um, and then the saturated fats also, for instance, lung surfactant is made from a, from a dye saturate molecule. Um, and you want saturated fat forming the surfactant that is in your lungs because it's going to protect your lungs against, um, oxidative stress, mm -hmm. right? You're breathing in oxygen all day long. You want a type of fat there that is resistant to oxidation. You don't want, omega-6 fats forming that surfactant. You certainly don't want trans fats forming that surfactant. Um, and so there's a role for all these different types of fats to play. Monounsaturated fats are great, like you get in avocados and olive oil and that kind of a thing. But it's not how great for you they are. It's how bad for you they're not, for the most part. You know, they're very richly represented in... in uh, some of the more stable vegetable fats like olive oil and avocado oil, which are fine. Those are on kind of the approved list. They're a little bit more stable than the polyunsaturated oils. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're useful. They can be beta oxidized for energy, but they're not, they don't form necessarily that essential, a, a structural substrate or functional substrate in terms of your cognitive functioning and, and all of that. But doesn't uh, olive oil become rancid if heated? Oh yeah, I don't. I don't advocate for cooking with it. I use it on salads. I do the same thing. Avocado oils can sometimes be a little more stable. Um, the more refined these oils are, generally, the more refined the olive oil and the avocado oil are. Uh, you know, almost paradoxically, uh, in terms of health, the more stable they're likely to be if exposed to heat. But really. I prefer to get the, the most raw and unfiltered forms of these oils and just use them drizzled over, uh, you know, salads or drizzled over, um, you know, cooked vegetables or whatever um, as just something to add. You know, the, I, I like the flavor um, and I I want to get the majority of my calories from fat uh, wherever possible. But fortunately, that doesn't mean that your food is swimming in fats and oils. Um, it doesn't take that much fat mm -hmm. to to get a higher caloric um, value from it. Uh, fats have double the caloric value of carbohydrates or protein, uh, but they actually can produce four times the amount of energy. Um, and so they're a much more efficient energy source, but they're also very satiating. Most people don't binge on lard, <laughs> um, you know. We, we eat a small amount of that, then we think, okay, you know, I'm full now. And that's the beauty of, of, of having a fat-based diet. Is What about that, coconut oil? Yeah, you end up eating less food. Coconut oil is a very rich source of medium-chain triglycerides. Half of what makes up the fatty acid content of coconut oil is something called lauric acid. Lauric acid converts to something called monolaurin in the human body. Monolaurin is one of the most powerful natural antiviral agents known and so it's useful that way there's also a small percentage of what's called caprylic acid in coconut oil which is a medium chain triglyceride that converts quite readily into something known as ketones ketones are basically the um they're the water soluble energy units of fat okay it's 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 kind of the byproduct of, of fat metabolism where um And it's it's the most highly efficient energy substrate uh, known to humankind. Um, there is nothing that is a more efficient, more powerful uh, source of fuel. And it's actually a more efficient and powerful source of fuel and more um, uh, more energizing source of fuel than uh, than glucose or fatty acids in, uh, you know, in general. So the idea, um, you know, we produce ketones when we have, you know, ceased to consume carbohydrates uh, for, you know, for at least 24 to 48 hours. And once we've burned off all the sugar that we have uh, in storage, you know, in the form of glycogen and all of that, once we've depleted those glycogen reserves, your body says, uh-oh, we have to 
come up with something else. And your body will then attempt start producing ketones in earnest, but it can take a little while for your body to become efficient at using that as an energy substrate. But once it does so, it's actually a much more uh, elegant and efficient source of fuel. And another thing that's rather interesting is that rather uniquely, humans are unique among all animals in that we are actually, our brains are actually able to use ketones as a full-time source of fuel ongoing. Um, other animals are able to make periodic use of ketones in that regard, but there's no other animal designed to use ketones full-time the way we are. And it has to do with, um, with the extreme energy demands of the human brain. Our brains make up maybe 2 to 5% of our you know, total body weight. Maybe a little less if you happen to be a politician, but I'm not going to name names. <laughs> but we, our brains actually use, you know, 20 to even 30 percent of our total caloric energy demands. And if you're a baby, that's up to 85 percent of your caloric energy demands. If you're a young child, a toddler, maybe 45 percent, which is, you know, simply an incredible demand. And there is something that is a well-accepted um uh, principle in paleoanthropology, and it's called the expensive tissue hypothesis. And what that is, that expensive tissue hypothesis is basically based on the idea that our human brain is extremely expensive in terms of its ongoing energy requirements. And it's, it's so interesting to point out that, you know, that creatures that have big brains don't necessarily have a metabolic rate that's any faster than those with smaller brains. So the metabolic requirement has to be compensated for in some other way. And this metabolic requirement over the course of our evolutionary process has been progressively met by offsetting the size of our guts as a, compared to, say, our primate ancestors that had a much longer, larger gut. You know, you can see with chimps, they have these big, barely-looking guts. Um, and our, in our closest primate relatives, the chimpanzee, for instance, has a way bigger gut than we do and it's they're much more efficient actually at processing plant-based material through this intensive process of fermentation but as humans we have this greatly shortened large intestine and a significantly lengthened small intestine that designs us to get our primary nutritional and our neurological needs met by directly consuming a much more nutrient-dense diet that is rich in a variety of fats and what they refer to this as is a high-quality diet, actually. Diet richer in protein and fat, much more nutrient density that we can get to. So we also have what can be termed a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system versus a fermentative-based digestive system that's had by herbivores. Um, and, you know, we, we are literally incapable of extracting all of the potential nutrition that are contained within plants in a manner that allows for all of our nutritional needs. And there's this very strong correlation, too, between brain size and dietary nutrient density relative, um, you know, to the available, um, you know, um, fats that are capable of giving rise to the sophisticated cognition that we have. But what and about somebody who has... Uh somebody who has extra storage of, of, of fat, somebody who's obese, don't right. they have to wait until those reserves go down before the ketones are produced? Correct me if no, I'm wrong, by the liver? No, 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 no. What they, oh, what they need to do, see, I mean, the, you know, obesity is, is, a, is a complex topic, and, and we can come at it from a lot of different angles. But in, in simplified general terms, if you're eating a carbohydrate-based diet, as long as you're producing insulin, which you're going to if you're eating carbohydrate-based foods. You're eating, in other words, utilizable carbohydrate-based foods like sugars and starches. When you consume those things, so uh, let me start with it. So none of us is supposed to have more than about a teaspoon, maybe five grams of blood sugar, blood glucose, circulating our bloodstream at any given time. That's it? Yes. Wow. Yes. And, uh, and your body is obsessed with maintaining the lowest level of blood glucose possible. Um, now, we're told 
and and taught rather erroneously that I might add that of necessity we are reliant upon glucose as a primary source of fuel for our body and our organs and our brain or whatever that is very misleading extremely misleading and it's inaccurate it's only accurate if a person has metabolically adapted themselves to a primary dependence on glucose as 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 a primary source of fuel uh rather unnaturally I might add but that's not the only alternative and nature would never have been so stupid as to make us dependent full time on something so volatile and unreliable as blood sugar you know we you know in order to maintain so one of the analogies and and I'll get to the obesity thing in a second but I have to kind of kind of preface this a little bit sure and I, it seems that we have enough time probably to do that um correct me if i'm wrong but correct but, but if um so you can look upon carbohydrates basically as being a form of metabolic kindling, if you will. In other words, your whole grains and your beans and your brown rice and your whole grain breads and your, uh, you know, sweet potatoes and all the, the things that we're told are complex carbohydrates that are supposed to be at the base of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's food pyramid. No, you know, no conflict of interest there, right? Um, right. Those are basically the metabolic equivalent of twigs on your metabolic fire. And then you have your white rice and your white bread and your pasta and your, you know, your your refined uh, breads and, you know, white potatoes and things like that. And those are basically the metabolic equivalent of crumpled up paper on that fire. And then you have things like alcoholic beverages, you know, um, and and sweetened beverages and things of that nature, you know, candy bars, whatever. This is a little bit like throwing gasoline or lighter fluid on that metabolic fire. Now, if all you had to run your metabolic wood stove, if you will, you know, being from Minnesota, you know, these wood stove analogies sort of work well for me. Um, and, and today in Oregon, it's working pretty well for me, too, um, with the snowstorm we just had. That if all you had to run to heat your house with, with that wood stove, was kindling, you could do it. And metaphorically, this is the way 99% uh, and more than 99% of the general public and of society as a whole is doing it. But what are you actually doing? You, you've got a chair pulled up in front of that wood stove. You've got the door of the wood stove open. And, you know, you're never very far away from it. And, and you're constantly preoccupied with where the next handful of fuel is going to come from to keep that fire going. It's terribly inefficient. Um, you need to to, you know, um, either forage for or buy a lot of uh, of of this kindling to have it handy. It's going to take up a lot of space. It's going to be expensive and you're going to be constantly preoccupied. You're basically what I refer to as being enslaved to a constant preoccupation with where the next handful of fuel is coming from. But what's the alternative? Well, what if you're to, if what if you were to take a nice big fat log and throw that on the fire instead? Suddenly now, oh my gosh, you're free. Um, you have the ability to throw a log on and then go about your business, live your life. You can, in fact, you can even go to bed and sleep through the entire night. And yes, there's an analogy to be made here. Um, and, uh, you know, you wake up in the morning, uh, you look in the, in the wood stove and it's like, oh, look, the fire's burning down. I'll just throw another log on the fire. And that's all you need to do. And you can go out and run errands and whatever. And if you think of it, you know, you might, you might, uh, and you're hungry, you might eat something. But you're not constantly thinking about snacking. You're not having to, you know, religiously go about, you know, in, in adding regular meals to all of this. Um, to keep, to keep that metabolic fire going. It's a periodic thing where you add to the fire as you need to when you're, when you feel like, yeah, you know, I think I'm hungry. I think I'll eat. And this is an, this is probably the single most liberating thing a person can do for their metabolism is shift to a fat based metabolism over a sugar based metabolism. But I will, I'm here to tell you, Mel, and, and, and all your listeners, that there is not one single multinational corporation that I can think of that would not be heavily committed, um, heavily uh, committed to making sure that every man, woman and child on planet Earth is consuming a carbohydrate based diet. They are cheap. Carbohydrates are cheap as hell to produce, especially the kind that we are basing our diet on these days. They're incredibly profitable. In other words, 
there's no way you're going to make a 5,000% profit on a grass-fed steak like you yeah. are a box of cereal. And they, it keeps you perpetually hungry. What's not for Monsanto and Nabisco to love about this? It's, um, an, it's an addiction, isn't it? Well, in, in a manner of speaking, it, it, it is a constant preoccupation. It, it's like an addiction. It can be an addiction when it comes to sugar. Sugars um, stimulate opiate centers in the brain, literally the same areas of the brain that are stimulated by things like heroin and cigarettes. Um, Yes, cigarettes and, and alcohol and, and all the most addictive substances. And and some people are more vulnerable to that than others. Some people can eat an occasional sugary thing and be, meh, you know, no big deal. And for other people, it is a constant preoccupation and they don't know how to resist it. And once they start eating those foods, they don't know how to stop. And that's, a, that's literally an opiate addiction. Interestingly, also, in grains um, – uh, there are there are two compounds, um, uh, gluteomorphin and pro, protonorphin, um, which are morphine-like compounds. That also, I and I believe we adopted, um, you know, a grain-based uh, agricultural system about ten thousand years ago. Due to the due to uh, what amounted to an addiction to the, these morphine-like compounds in this food, and the other the other thing that we got from grains was we figured out one day that we could ferment them and make beer. <laughs> I think that at that point the dye was cast, but we're talking about a vastly inferior source of nutrition, but one that was fairly easy to produce in abundant amounts once we figured out how to do it. Uh, and, uh, but one that also resulted in the need to suddenly become less nomadic and to become and become more stationary and form much larger population centers that then allowed for, you know, the development of, say, ruling class hierarchies and nation states and full scale war because we had suddenly something we had to protect and defend all the time. Agriculture and civilization. Agriculture and civilization. And the other interesting thing that it has occurred seemingly as a result, or arguably, I should say, as a result of this, is that in the last 10,000 years, since we um, began to reduce our dependence on fats as a primary source of fuel and shifted instead to a dependence on carbohydrates as a primary source of fuel, in just the last 10,000 years alone, we've lost just over 10% of our total brain volume. And we've abandoned the these uh, these fat fat-based nutrients, these essential fatty acids that form the basis for human cognition in favor of increasing dependence on carbohydrate-based uh, fuel. And that forms absolutely no uh, foundational substrate for human brain. In fact, for even the human body, maybe one to two percent of the human body is actually made up of carbohydrate in some form. And we don't have to consume any of it in order to maintain um, the, the structural integrity of, of those of those aspects, which is mostly connective tissue and, and things of that nature, um, and certain glyconutrients and glycoproteins that are in our immune system uses, you know, of the three major macronutrients, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, the only one for which there is literally no scientifically established, medically established human dietary requirement is carbohydrates. Um, we can we can manufacture all the glucose we need uh, that we ever need from a combination of proteins and fats in the diet. It is possible to have an essential fatty acid deficiency. It is possible to have a protein deficiency. It is not possible to have any manner of carbohydrate deficiency. It's a myth. It doesn't exist. So people. So it's may, not a requirement then. It's not a requirement, and in fact, we are it, the 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 overwhelming evidence and. You know, the original version of the manuscript of Primal Fat Burner was actually in excess of 300,000 words, much to the chagrin of my publisher, um, and over 3,000 peer-reviewed references. Um, I, you know, their eyes sort of glazed over and they thought, oh my God, we can't possibly publish something this big. And I was forced to slash over two-thirds of the content and, and nine-tenths of the peer-reviewed references so I wouldn't intimidate people into thinking the book was too sciencey. But I literally found that level of evidence that that not only is a fat-based metabolism superior for health and longevity and and for the addressing you know the major diseases of modern civilization, um, 
but it also that that uh, it's infinitely healthier for us from the standpoint of of lowering our dependence on on carbohydrates and and on on um you know utilizable carbohydrates like like um like sugars and starches now it might surprise you to hear that if you were to look at my actual dinner plate on any given night or what or evening or whatever you would think uh, you might think at first glance that I might be a vegetarian because what you're going to see is an overwhelming variety of say uh, of vegetable fibrous vegetables and greens there and you'll might see some sliced avocado and whatever on the plate and, and I'm glad I don't mean to interrupt you but I'm glad you're mentioning this because when people think of the word paleo they think a piece of steak and nothing else right right no and this is it so Primal fat burner, um, one of the things that's really important to point out is that, you know, I talk about the ancestral foundations of, of this of this dietary approach in this book. And to me, that's an essential starting place. But it cannot be an end point if you're trying to optimize health, because just because our ancestors put something in our mouths and didn't seem to drop dead doesn't necessarily mean that that food is of necessity optimal for them. I mean, how would we know? Um, much less optimal for us now. And one of the things I use to evaluate that uh, potential optimal effect is human longevity research. And we know from human longevity research, and I cover this a lot in my new book, I also covered it at great length in my previous book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, it has discovered that that the degree to which we can minimize our, our uh, need for insulin, I mean, the less insulin that we need in the course of our lives, the longer we live and the healthier we'll be by far. Insulin was found to be a mitigating factor in terms of health and longevity hugely. And so we need to create less of a demand for it. And the one macronutrient that's most responsible for stimulating the overproduction of insulin is, of course, you know, sugars and starches. But also, that's a very important part of this equation that's been discovered through longevity research um, is that it's a very important for us. We have a requirement for protein, and it's very important that those proteins come from animal source foods. Number one, it's complete protein. In other words, all of the essential amino acids are present in, in a piece of meat or fish or eggs or whatever. But also um, that uh, that the presence of that animal source protein also stimulates the release of hydrochloric acid. And we have a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system, and, and it's a north-to-south-based digestive system. In other words, that the, the pH signaling generated by hydrochloric acid production is what signals the, what happens in the small intestine and what ultimately happens in the large intestine down the pike. And, it, and if we're not producing enough hydrochloric acid, um, the rest of our digestion is not going to do well. We're going to have problems with that. We're going to have problems properly digesting and absorbing the nutrients we eat. But also, most people listening would probably agree that minerals are incredibly important. Well, the way our digestive system is designed, the way we're designed, the minerals in our diet really aren't available to us. Many of the key minerals in our diet that many are not available to us until they have been ionized in the gut. Ionization takes place through the, through the action of hydrochloric acid in humans. Now, in, in ruminants, for instance, and herbivores, you know, minerals are basically made available through the extensive breakdown and fermentation of plant fibers and things like that to get at and extract all of the nutrients contained within these plant foods. Now, I'm not saying we can't get some good things from plant foods and that there aren't some nutrients that we're able to kind of squeeze out of them and whatever else and some beneficial phytonutrients and antioxidants. All that's true, and, it, and it's good. It's fine. It's great. They're probably more important to us now than they ever ever used to be in our previous and in, in our earlier evolutionary heritage, just simply by virtue of the toxic environment that we live in now. So anything that way that we can add, you know, and the fiber can also help bind maybe you know excess hormones and, and things like that, xeno estrogens and whatever, and help us get rid of them a little bit better. The fiber provides bulk, which adds some you know satisfying effects it makes you feel fuller in other words it's not essential to us but i think it's more important to us now 
Um, but here's something that's super interesting um, that it, it, not just humans are designed to make use of fat as a primary source of fuel, but all large mammals are actually designed to be fat burners and not sugar burners. And that includes ruminants and herbivores. And where we are designed to get our fats directly from animals that have synthesized them for us, you know, from the green grasses that they've eaten in the parent form, omega-3s, alpha-linolenic acid that that the, that exists in the chloroplast of, of green plants and things like that, that a cow will then take and the body, the cow's body will then convert that through an elongation process into EPA and DHA if that cow has eaten nothing but grass through its entire life and natural forage. Um, but cows are actually get 70% of their caloric intake from the, from short chain saturated fatty acids from the bacterial fermentation of all that fiber. <clears throat> so the back, so the cow eats, and by the way, animals that are actually designed to eat a carbohydrate based diet, what are they doing all day long? Their faces are in the bushes, they're in the grass, they're in the trees, they're wherever. They're eating constantly, and they are actually designed to eat a plant-based diet. They're designed to get their primary nourishment from plants, and it takes eating all day long for them to do it. But even then, they're not getting their primary calories from carbohydrates. They get very little caloric, actually, uh, value from the carbohydrates they consume all day. What happens is they eat all this fiber, and that fiber then starts to ferment in these huge fermentation vats that they have for a digestive tract. And it's the bacterial action on that fiber that then generates huge amounts of butyric acid, you know, and, and propionic and acetic acid. But the primary energy source is through butyric acid, which is a short chain saturated fatty acid. And that's where a cow gets 70% of its calories, not from sugar or starch. So even cows are designed to be fat burners. Um, we, on the other hand, again, we can't do that. We can't do more than 5% of what a cow does in terms of converting, um, you know, the fiber from foods into, say, butyric acid. Uh, we just can't get our primary energy that way. We, you know, the, our, the bacteria in our gut likes that fiber. It doesn't have to have it. There's also fermentable fiber in, in meat. Um, collagen fibers are actually fermentable. Um, and that's, that's how humans have been able to do it during times where, uh, say we didn't have any accessibility to plant-based foods. And there are many, you know, examples of that throughout history, uh, throughout our evolutionary history where we just, in, in certain cultures that just really didn't have access to plant fiber. Um, we can have a healthy microbiome that way as long as the quality of what we're eating is is healthy in that we're not compromising it in other ways. But we are actually designed to get um, uh, all of our fats, and we get a much greater variety of fats through the consumption of animals that have um, that have in turn um, a huge variety of fats in in their bodies, and and have converted a lot of these plant based fats into elongated forms that for us are huge part of what makes us human. And so, and, and we also get, it's not just about fats and fatty acids, it's about fat soluble nutrients, vitamin A. Uh, most people think beta carotene is vitamin A. It's not. Beta carotene is pro vitamin A. In other words, it takes anywhere from six to 20 units of beta carotene to form a single unit of vitamin A. Vitamin A in its pure form, in its true retinol form, can only be gotten, only be gotten from animal source foods. And we do have a decided requirement for retinol, for, for true vitamin A. There's no possible way, um, even if you have 100% healthy thyroid, you don't have any nutritional deficiencies whatsoever, you're older than about six years old. So you're able, under those circumstances, to take some beta carotene from carrots or whatever and, and make some vitamin A, a small amount of vitamin A. But if you have nutritional deficiencies, if your thyroid is compromised, you have, you know, any kind of hepatic compromise, you know, liver compromise, um, and you're, and say you're a small child, you can't make those conversions at all. So there's no possible way, but even under optimal circumstances that you can meet all your vitamin A needs from beta carotene or other carotenoids. You can't. 
I see so many vegetarians who pass that to their children and they say, you know, you can get, if the parents are vegetarian, more than likely they're going to make their children vegetarian too. And they say, whatever you need, you don't need an animal. You can always eat it from the plant world. I hear that all the time. Right. Is, is vegetarianism a modern day experiment? And if so, why? That's exactly what it is. There is no basis either in human physiological makeup or in the human fossil record, much less in, in any form of anthropological research that's ever been done. There's no basis for the idea of, of, of vegetarianism or especially veganism. Um, and and um, again, you know, in, in Weston Price's time, what he found as a, as a truth was that the healthiest cultures by far, and he wasn't biased, he actually was really disappointed. He really wanted to find a vegetarian culture, a vegan culture. He was never able to find one in in his in his searches. I will say that the that in in a southern India that the uh, the vegetarians um, or vegans there uh, have the shortest lifespan of any people group on earth, um, and and the highest rates of diabetes of any people group on earth uh, right now. They're dying. They're dropping dead in droves there. And I have a a friend who's a, a medical doctor in in one of the world's great metabolic experts of our time, Dr. Ron Rosedale, um, has been um, asked by people in government in India to come and open clinics and to try to treat uh, people by trying to educate them about some of the dietary principles that I'm talking about. Um, you know, this is a solution to uh, to the epidemic of, of, of diabetes and other metabolic diseases. We are not designed to eat a carbohydrate-based diet. We don't have the digestive tract that is required to extract all of the nutrition from plants. Yes, there is zinc in pumpkin seeds, but guess what? There's also phytic acid in pumpkin seeds that binds with that zinc and makes it unavailable to us. And even if you soak and sprout those pumpkin seeds ahead of time, which helps to neutralize some of the phytic acid that could otherwise bind the mineral, Unless you have hydrochloric acid in your gut when you consume that zinc, um, you're not going to absorb it. Are you saying it's not bioavailable? I'm saying it's not bioavailable in, in any meaningful way. That if you want to eat those, those, those soaked and sprouted pumpkin seeds on a salad that has maybe a little bit of sliced grass-fed beef on it or something like that, you'll make much better use of that zinc than you would if you just ate the pumpkin seeds on an empty stomach you're not likely to make any significant use of the nutrients that are contained within um, seeds and, and, um, uh, and other plant-based foods. You know, yes, there's iron in spinach, but there's also oxalic acid in spinach that will bind that iron and make it unavailable. Now, you can cook that spinach and break down a lot of, uh, you know, of the oxalic acid in there. Uh, and make the iron a little more available. You can take extra vitamin C to help make some of the iron in plant-based foods more available. But without the presence of hydrochloric acid, your absorption of that iron is going to be minimal. You cannot, for instance, re reverse you know, an, an, a state of anemia effectively with just like spinach. It's not going to happen. I'm sorry. You know, no matter how much we would wish it to be. And by the way, I've spent the better part of my of the earlier part of my adult life um and and in young life absolutely committed to um the well-being of animals uh i i um am, am committed to ending suffering wherever i see it whether it be in humans or in animals and where vegetarians or vegans make a case for just how inhumanely animals are treated that are part of our food chain, you know, that the ways in which we raise them on factory farms and in feedlots and things. I am right with you. Um, I, I will stand alongside you and shout as loud, if not louder, at, at the need to abolish um, this kind of food production. It, it, it doesn't result in, in what I can think of legitimately as food. We were never designed to eat, you know, food uh, or, or meat of animals that were shot full of hormones and antibiotics and fed things like stale, you know, fed grains, which are not any more natural to cows and other uh, animals than they are to us. Um, they're designed to fatten these animals up in the feedlot. And, you know, we can all take a hint from that. Grains fatten things up. 
Um, and they make, the, and they also make these animals and feedlots very sick very quickly. Um, but you know, who cares because they're headed for slaughter anyway. Right. Uh, and, and they're also fed things like stale candy wrappers and stale candies and gummy bears and, and things like, even like cement dust have been approved for feed additive because the more an animal weighs on the auction block, um, you know, at the end of its life, uh, the more money it's worth to, uh, the more money it brings in basically. Is that right? Yeah. So there are all kinds of unethical, I believe, unethical practices that are, that are, quote unquote, legitimately, uh, you know, they're legal, in other words, and incorporated into this type of food production. And 97% of all the meat produced is produced in, in similar ways through feedlots and factory farming. We need to put an end to that. And one of the things that I make a case for in Primal Fat Burner is to really restore a focus to food quality and to sustainability paying attention to where our meat and 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 in our plant-based foods come from in the first place and not be willing to compromise that to stand up to your i mean look these changes are never going to come from the top down folks they're just not i mentioned earlier that there isn't a multinational corporation that isn't going to be committed to making sure that you are getting everything that you can possibly eat from from either carbohydrate based foods or and or processed foods or both um, you know, number one source of calories right now in the American diet is high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. The number one source of fat calories is partially hydrogenated or interesterified and GMO based soybean oil. Um, canola oil bringing up a, a very close second. This isn't food. The, these are not the kinds of fats that I'm talking about incorporating. And the only way that we're going to make a change it's not going to come from the top down. It will never come from the top down. We know, and I'm, I'm sure the listeners to your show are savvier than others. They, they realize that, that, um, our, our political process right now is, is in the hands of multinational corporate interests. Um, and those who that control the multinational corporate interests, the big, you know, small handful that's an oligarchy, you know, of, of, in, and of all of the media. Um, all of the mainstream media, I should say, is owned by roughly five corporate multinational corporate interests. And whatever conflicts with whatever is going to advance the profits and power of those interests just simply isn't going to make it on That's the right. evening news, except in maybe a, der in a derisive sort of way. Um, so the only way we make changes to this is by recognizing that we are the ones that we've been waiting for. We have no one but ourselves to come save us, to rescue us from all of this. And unless, you know, if you want to make a vote that actually matters, <laughs> you know, as voting goes, you vote with your dollars. You, you make, you under, you need to understand that every, with every dollar you spend on whatever, you are voting for what you are willing to put up with and what you are um, willing to accept as legitimately, you know, um, you know, as legitimate food for you. But the problem is, too, that we have these labeling laws that prevent us from knowing now. It's true. It's true. So increasingly, it becomes important to develop a firsthand knowing uh, of where your food comes from. Now, I do most of my food shopping, if you will, through uh, like meat or whatever through, well, they're there are some online sources that I know are pretty good, like U.S. Wellness Meats, also known as grasslandbeef.com. Um, their meat is 100% grass-fed and finished. Um, actually, a lot of it comes from, say, Tasmania and whatever, which is the southern hemisphere, which I'm, I'm actually in favor of because of the relative lack of contamination in the southern hemisphere relative to the northern hemisphere. But regardless, um, but, but also getting to know your local ranchers, getting to know your local farmers and, um, and, and choosing to spend your money, um, with those who are working very hard to try to do the right thing. And so you have, um, you have farmers markets, uh, where you can go and get organic and hundred percent grass fed produce, uh, uh grass fed rather, um, uh, produced meats and things like that. Um, and, you know, that's very, very helpful. There are CSAs and things like that a person could subscribe to to get things sent to them. Um, 
There are uh, co food cooperatives, still a few of them left. We have a couple different kinds here in, in Portland where I live. Uh, and I know elsewhere in the country there are food cooperatives. They're also, they're also um, increasingly, and these are considered sort of rogue kinds of things, and they're frowned upon um, by uh, the mainstream you know, economic interests, but these private buying clubs. And a lot of these things are being run. I mean, it's practically having to get your food in dark alleyways, but like families that will start up a buying club and they'll travel around to different farms and they'll collect, you know, the best quality foods and they'll make them available. And then everybody kind of splits their interest in all of these things. And um, these are increasingly um, popular now. And, you know, you can go to um, you know, there are, there are chapters. You can call your local chapter, say the Weston A. Price Foundation. A lot of those people are fairly savvy in terms of where you can go locally in your area, wherever you are, and find these things. Also, um, and you know, who may be operating some of these private buying clubs or whatever. Also, you can go to eatwild.com. That's Joe Robinson's site. And, and it's, there's a huge repository there of um, lists throughout the country and throughout the world of uh, where you can find people producing grass-fed meat, for instance, where you are, wherever you are. Um, this is a growing movement, though. This is more than just here's what you ought to do. There really is a growing movement happening. Uh, some call it the real food movement. Um, there's certainly the paleo movement is, is definitely a part of this. Um, and, and a lot of vegetarians and vegans are on board with this idea, too, of, of finding the best quality real food that is most sustainably produced. We're all in the same book, you know, or same boat here, I mean. We're all in the same boat together in terms of um, what we're up against, in terms of the forces that are compromising our health, our environment, our food supply right now. Um, we all, you know, all of us that are passionate about, you know, these these subjects, for whatever ideological background we may come at it from, we care about the health and quality uh, of, of our lives, of, of what we, you know, of what we put into our bodies. You know, we all care about that our food is, is produced in a humane and sustainable manner. And I think we have more to gain by looking at what we have in common than what what makes us different from each other, what divides us. Everything in our culture right now is set up to um, basically is set up to um, to pit us against each other. Yep, divide us, right. And, 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 and I'm telling you that's by design and, and, and listeners to this show know that better than, than most understand the ways in which we're manipulated in order to be at war with one another so that the people that are actually running things get to kind of do what they do with impunity and, and not have to, you know, if we were to actually act like the 99% and, and, and unite in terms of what we have in common, um, there's almost nothing we couldn't accomplish. Absolutely. Problem, you know, when you have like the, 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 um, uh, what was it called? The Occupy movement. Yeah. Uh, that was really, really big a few years ago. In principle, I was sympathetic, but unfortunately, what, what was happening was that you had people angrily marching in the streets. Um, and, you know, the, and they're all carrying signs. And every sign has a different slogan on it. Yeah, there was no real purpose, really. No cohesiveness, no combined. No cohesiveness, right. Right, no, no combined objective. So it was a scattering of energy that I'm sure that the powers that be sat back and chuckled at and said, fine, let them, let them waste. Let, let them vent steam. Right, exactly. Um, you know, it's, it, we should be outraged, certainly, at what we're being subjected to. But what we need to do is very rapidly transform that outrage into productive action and, and self-responsibility instead of shaking our fists and our fingers at whoever's responsible and make ourselves responsible for what we do next and, and, and then, and then work together in a positive way toward these, toward these changes. Absolutely. And, and we have to break 
this into two segments. So before we break the segment, let me just say this. I recently, since you mentioned soy, I recently had Dr. Kayla Daniel on, and I know. Oh, you know yeah, the, yeah, yeah, good friend of mine. Yeah, I know, the, the naughty nutritionist, to discuss uh, dangers of soy. And one thing that amazed me about was that the number of testimonials from people who regretted turning vegetarian, and especially those who made soy a large part of their diet. I was amazed to learn of their stories and how sick many of them became. And they, some of them, you know, almost you know, there's died. There's a very, a very funny quote I can give you quickly is that the, sure. the former editor, and I can't remember his name now, Vegetarian Times, he'd been a 20 year, um, you know, 20 year vegetarian, um, went back to eating meat. And when he was asked why, his response was because 20 years of tofu is a long time. <laughs> What did he do with the magazine or the the entity? No, it's it's still it's still a magazine. I'm I'm pretty sure it still exists out there as a magazine. Um, I, I I haven't picked one up lately. I could be wrong. Maybe it's since defunct. I will say that statistically, and I provide this statistic and it's, and the and the source for this statistic in my book. But 75% of all vegetarians um, end up re going back to consuming animal source foods again um, within 10 years and nearly always due to health-related issues. And to end, before you give us your coordinates to get the book and so on, have answered this question on the other side, but it seems that we've diver diverged from our evolutionary design. And if so, how and why and how can we restore order again? Because this is a solutions-based program, and you'll tell us when we come back. How can people buy the new book, which I loved, by the way, Primal oh, Fat Burner? Excellent, excellent. Yes, you, you can go to primalfatburner.com would be the best place for you to go to find out more about that book and to you know find links to where you can get copies. Um, I also want to encourage your your listeners to watch for a new uh, to new weekly educational informational series that I have created called. Uh, um, Primal Power 52, which is, you know, 52 weeks in a year. It's a weekly, uh, basically educational informational program uh, designed to provide really in-depth information that you're not going to get anyplace else about all of these things. And you can you can find out more about that by going to Primal Power 52. It's going to be a real game changer for a lot of people that are that, that just really want to understand more about this and want to feel self-empowered, which is the number one thing out of everything that impassioned me to write this book. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. So much more to discuss. And I'm so privileged to have once again, Narga Goddess discussing her new book, Primal Fat Burner. So much when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas, now with health and wellness. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening to part one of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, head on over to the member section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. You don't want to miss the rest. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for lots of great products. Thank you.